when I became a parent, I became really focused on how do we build resilience in kids. So I was really looking at my own kids and saying, you know, I really want them to be resilient. What are the things that I can do? And so I ended up writing a parenting book. And when I was done with it, I was like, you know what? There's something missing. And the piece that's missing is understanding the brain and why we we react the way we do. And I started doing some reading. I started, you know, looking into neuroscience, um, reading about it, and recognized that it was so incredibly dense that we know so much information about the brain. I have a doctoral degree in education and not one course on the brain. Never did I learn anything about the brain and the way we learn. That seemed crazy to me. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Waddell Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human. Donna Volpita, who has been a friend for a long time, we went to college together. She and I created our name tags educational program for the One Revolution Foundation. She's a former classroom teacher with experience in both general and special education, a doctoral degree in learning disabilities from Teachers College at Columbia University, co-author of The Resilience Formula, A Guide to Proactive, Not Reactive Parenting. We're going to talk about a variety of things, but proactive is going to be a huge part of it. Donna, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited. This is always fun for me just to be able to figure out, like I look at what you're doing now and you're doing such amazing things. I mean, mental health literacy in a time when we really need to know about mental health, to to remove some of the stigmas, to help empower kids and adults, especially coming out of COVID, to be their best selves and to be able to help themselves along the way. But can we take just a little step back? Why did you decide to go into education in the first place? You were a psychology major in college, right? Is that true? I was a psychology major. I had a minor in both theater and teacher ed. So I did know, I think- um, Theater and teacher ed is basically the same thing kind of thing, right? Pretty much. I I, I laugh because I actually had a double major, psychology and sociology, and a double minor in theater and teacher ed. And I say that they were the best degrees. I have used everything from those degrees for my entire life. Um, I thought it it was great. Um, I probably would add neuroscience now, but you know, that's, they didn't have that in our days. <laughs> they, they were not talking neuroscience when we were in college, Chris. Um, so, you know, going back to why, why did I become an educator? Um, I have to tell you that if you ask my parents, they would have said that in about first grade, they knew I was going to be a teacher. Um, it was, it was in my blood from very early on. I always loved the idea of teaching. I was a summer camp counselor. I was, you know, I just love that stuff. So I loved working with kids. What did they see though? I mean, it's like, okay, you loved, you were a camp counselor, that kind of stuff. But as a first grader, like, what did they see in you? Were you relating to the teacher? Were you the one who was helping all the other students? How did it work? I think it was more, I was the one helping other students. Like I I just loved to explain stuff. I loved to work with people. I loved to you know, and, and I think that camp was probably the biggest foundation of my life. Like I, I went from the time I was seven to the time that I was 18 and 
loved camp counseling, just loved, um, you know, teaching. I used to teach water skiing. Um, and it was just the idea of teaching something to people was great. I always considered myself a translator. Um, not that I know any languages other than English. Unfortunately, I wish I did, but translating information in a way that people could understand it. Which leads to a lot of what you're doing right now, right? Because you mentioned neuroscience, which neuroscience is something that seems like it scares a lot of people. It <laughs> sounds like we need many advanced degrees and you're going to give me something that is going to be so dense that I'm going to feel ridiculously stupid and, and I'm going to be further behind. But yeah. what you're doing is translating, as you said, from this dense potentially incomprehensible kind of stuff, or at least perceptionally incomprehensible stuff to something that is not only easy to understand is simple, but is practical in terms of its application. How, how, how are you doing that? Why, how are you doing it? Why are you doing it? How does it, how does it all work, Donna? Well, from the translating perspective, I, I, when I became a parent, I became really focused on how do we build resilience in kids. So I was really looking at my own kids and saying, you know, I really want them to be resilient. What are the things that I can do? And so I ended up writing a parenting book. And when I was done with it, I was like, you know what? I there's something missing. And the piece that's missing is understanding the brain and why we we react the way we do. And I started doing some reading. I started, you know, looking into neuroscience, um, reading about it and recognized that it was so incredibly dense that we know so much information about the brain. I have a doctoral degree in education and not one course on the brain. Never did I learn anything about the brain and the way we learn. That seemed crazy to me. So I, I went and I did some research and it was so incredibly dense. Like the, all this stuff that that they were writing about was very important, but it was dense. It was stuff that was not accessible. Um, and I re read a book called Out of Character by David Destano. And that book was sort of life-changing for me because he put people into moral dilemmas and saw how they responded. Define what a moral dilemma is, too, because this is something that we think we understand, but we might not necessarily. Right. A moral dilemma is sort of like, I want to do one thing, but I should do something else. And he but, had. But in some ways, even even more profound. Right. I mean, the moral dilemma is like you have four children and and it's like one is drowning over here and another is drowning over there. It's kind of like, isn't that like the moral dilemma of like. Do, can I save one or the other? I mean, it's almost like it's a zero sum kind of thing, isn't it? Or No, I, he was looking more at, I have an opportunity to cheat from somebody or steal from somebody or hurt somebody. Um, wh at what point do I do that? What conditions am I more likely to do that? Why do we cheat and steal? Why does somebody have an affair? Why does somebody, you know, he, he looked at things that people do that, you know, don't look like they're, you know, somebody who looks on the outside like they are a moral upstanding citizen is likely to do some things that might not exactly be recognized as such. And so he put people into these dilemmas and saw when they were likely to cheat, steal, and hurt other people. Um, and what are those situations? And it's a fascinating book. It's called Out of Character, The Liar, Cheater, Sinner, and All of Us. 
Um, and at the end, the conclusion here, you know, <laughs> I'm going to give the conclusion to the book. It's still worth reading. But he said that people think about decisions as good versus bad. Remember Fred Flintstone with the angel and the devil over mm -hmm. the shoulder that would pop up when he was in this decision-making and the angel would be like, don't do it. Don't do it, Fred. Don't do it. And the grasshopper and the, I'm sorry, the devil would be like, do it, do it, do it. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. And he said, it's not an angel and a devil. We don't think of decisions as good versus bad to our brain. Those decisions are long-term versus short-term. So instead of an, an angel and a devil, it's an ant and a grasshopper. And he came up with those characters from Aesop's fable. Mm -hmm. And the ant was always in charge of the long-term saying, okay, I can put stuff away for winter. And the grasshopper was like, oh, let's go have fun. And it just struck me that this is the key to understanding our decisions and understanding why we make the decisions we do. So I called David Desteno and I said to him, can I use this in a model that I'm creating? And he said, yes, just don't make the grasshopper the bad guy. Um, and he was really cute on the phone. He was very sweet. And so I created a model using those characters to explain how is our brain wired to respond to challenges. And interestingly, when you say decisions aren't good and bad, they're long-term versus short-term, it becomes non-judgmental. It becomes, this is why we make the decisions that we do. doesn't mean we can't change them but we have to understand that our brains are wired to survive. So we have to know when we can override those decisions and how we can do that. And so I just created a model, created four characters. There's the ant, the grasshopper, the um, glowworm and the dragonfly. And it really is a very simple way to have a common non-judgmental language to talk about decisions that we make. It's, I mean, some really interesting things coming out of that. One, like neuroscience in a lot of ways, what is you're essentially going to the root of where things are happening. I mean, mm -hmm. even having gone through, gotten your PhD, all of this stuff, it's like you're, you're working with some of the symptoms of what's happening without necessarily going to the root. So, so is that correct in saying that the neuroscience is going to the root the non-judgmental is, is an interesting part, the idea of good versus bad, because so much of that's how we that's how we see our lives. It's it's black and white, it's good, it's bad. But there's there's an emotional toll with the good and bad, right? The the bad part is, oh, I've failed, and those seem to accumulate. And when they accumulate, it becomes overwhelming. And we don't have a way out of it. So what you're talking about is short-term versus long-term. And, and it's a survival instinct and understanding that it is a survival instinct. What does this mean when you're connecting with, with kids and, and with adults? Like, I mean, how, does it open their, open their world up to uh, like, oh, okay, I understand I'm free as opposed to burdened by good and bad? Well, it doesn't mean you're, we're free. It doesn't mean that we, oh, okay, short-term decision, I can cheat and steal and lie. You know, it, it's 
understanding, having an understanding of why we make the, that decision can help us to make different decisions. It's it's not like, okay, you're free to do, um, do whatever you want. We still need, you know, the brain needs to have a way we need character we need we need to make these good decisions as humanity but i do think that what it does is it's it's amazing everybody relates i i have you know probably explained the model to people thousands of times over the last 10 12 years and it is amazing i can tell you how almost everyone will react to every part of the model um and everybody relates to the grasshopper everybody smiles when i talk about the grasshopper and say you know the grasshopper is in charge of short term doesn't really care if we put money in the bank go to the doctor eat healthy exercise study for the test kind of wants to eat cheetos and watch netflix everyone smiles everyone's like oh yeah that's me <laughs> um, you know they, they but understanding that we can we can change what happens. So one of my favorite stories, um, my my son was six, and one day he was mad at me, I was mad at him. And I went to talk to him and he said to me, Mom, I can't talk to you. I'm in grasshopper mode right now. And so it's his grasshopper was angry. He was right. And he knew because of the model that grasshoppers want to fight. And that he was likely to say something that was going to get him in trouble if he talked to me. And make so, the situation worse. Yes. Right. He, he was going to get himself into trouble. And so by saying that, it was non-judgmental. It was like, I can't do this because I don't want to hurt you. So let's do this later. Let's, when I'm in ant mode, I'll be ready to talk to you. And that's non-judgmental. That's, you know. When that, that happened, were you in grasshopper mode were you in ant mode when when your son said that funny enough i was in grasshopper mode too and i should not have been talking to him and he recognized it before i did which was kind of funny um but immediately when he said i'm in grasshopper mode uh, it it triggered my my grasshopper to my glow worm and dragonfly to realize that yes i should not be talking to him so it it turned me around and we did not get into a fight. So that's the power is to have that language to talk about what's happening in the brain and recognize that we're wired for this. Our brains evolved. We evolved during tribal times. The other piece that is fascinating to people when I explain the model, um, the, the parts that really blow people away, number one is that it's long-term versus the short-term. Our brains don't think in good, bad. But the other one is that our brains are wired to respond the same way to social threats as physical threats. When we have a threat to respect equity, alliances, control, territory, or similarity, which is part of the model, it's the social threats to the brain, our brain does the same thing. It goes into, it's wired to go into fight, flight, or freeze, get cortisol and adrenaline, get us into that like ready to fight mode. And we say and do things we regret. So we have so many social threats right now, particularly our youth. So it's not surprising we're seeing so much. We like to say uh, fight, flight, or freeze roughly translate to violence, anxiety, and depression. We're, we're seeing people in grasshopper mode all the time. And you don't recognize it. And what you're saying by people in grasshopper mod mode all the time, it's like, that's the baseline yeah. is, is being in grasshopper mode. 
why is this happening? I mean, what is what is the social threat? Is this coming out of COVID? Is it being on on virtual reality kind of you know virtual calls all the time? What what is the big threat? What's happening? So we actually saw an increase in violence, anxiety, and depression well before the pandemic. Pandemic has definitely exacerbated it, uh, you know, a lot. And a lot of that comes, the the threat with COVID has been the sense of control um, because we, we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, we feel out of control. So when we trigger the grasshopper, right? When we, we, we are overfeeding the grasshopper, we're overfeeding our limbic, our emotional system of the brain. And we're kind of starving the ant. We're starving that piece that makes those long-term decisions. A lot of that is that social media, media companies, entertainment companies hire neuroscientists to come in and figure out ways to trigger our grasshoppers. So all of those headlines are grasshopper food. They're meant to trigger the grasshopper. They're meant to get us emotional. They're meant to keep feeding that, you know, and the further on down the line, when you click on one, it gets you a little bit further. It gets you a little bit further. And the brain was wired during tribal times. So all of those um, social threats were tribal. So we are moving further into our separate tribes. That's why we're seeing the political landscape where we're going further and further left and right, because that grasshopper food trail is leading us down that path. So when you click on a headline, it will feed you one that's a little bit more emotionally triggering, which will then feed you another one that's a little bit more. It's like this trail of grasshopper food <laughs> that, we're, that we're using. Social media does the same thing. Um, entertainment companies, when we have, you know, there's a reason that Netflix has that your next video will start in five, four, three, two, one, because it's your grasshopper that's saying you can do one more. You can do it. You can do it. <laughs> so we're overfeeding our grasshoppers and we're starving our ants. So you said short-term versus long-term, but then understanding what happens and understanding that this is the way that our brain is wired, but also recognizing that we do have a choice in how we react in when we react. How do we, how do we seize control of that choice and make good choices within difficult times? So I would say the two most important things there, the two characters that sort of represent the long-term, one is the ant and the ant represents the cortex of the brain in charge of making long-term decisions. The ant is in charge of the things we don't really feel like doing right now, but we do them because they'll benefit us in the long run, putting money in the bank, studying for the test, finishing the project, you know, all of that delayed gratification kind of thing. Um, and the ant in, in the model, the ant has the tools of a healthy brain. So when we have those in place, we're better able to keep our ant healthy and keep our mental health. Um, and so those are social connections, exercise, good food, um, routines and focus. Um, uh, I think I said exercise and compassion, pride, and gratitude. 
and purpose. So when we have a sense of purpose, we're better able to do that. So, and um, the ant kind of looks like it's ready to go on a hike. So nature and outdoors is another one of the tools. So when we have those in place, we're better able to make those long-term decisions. That helps our ant get stronger. The other thing is the dragonfly is the, the last character and it has what we call the four S's of resilience on its wings. Um, that our response to challenge is guided by the way we think about ourself, judge the situation, use our supports and the strategies that we have to handle that challenge. When we build up those four S's, we can make the dragonfly stronger and the dragonfly is in charge of being able to override, being able to say, no, we don't need to go into fight, flight or freeze. We have these four S's. We have an action that we can take. The opposite of violence, anxiety, and depression is action, is knowing how to handle that situation, feeling confident. The other way to build the dragonfly is through mindful practice, is through really paying attention to the here and now, shutting off what we call the default network of the brain and paying attention to our senses and to our breathing, because that gives us that little extra second to be able to say, no, I'm not going to go into fight, flight, or freeze. That's what, you know, my son was able to say, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to tell her instead, I have a strategy. Um, so that's how we can build our ability to make those decisions that are long-term, that aren't we aren't going to regret in the short term. Which was an amazing strategic move on the part of your son as well too, right? To say, <laughs> I'm in grasshopper mode right now. And then you went back and went, wow. Like I respect him so much more now. And so then you're approaching the next conversation in an entirely different way. And, and so with, with regard to the dragonfly, so, so the self, the situation or the self, the situation, the support and the strategies, it's interesting as you talk about strategies, because one of the things that can be so hard in our world right now is focus, I believe. I mean, it seems like it's so easy to be drawn in this direction. You know, I watched that what the social network movie, right? And and uh, and where where there the you know command central is is sending out messages to you like, oh, he needs to know something about this or something about that or whatever. But to be able to focus and and to get that return of focus, to get the the gratification of the focus and, and the chemical response of the of the focus of a job well done. I, I had a conversation with with a, a guy that I just met through a friend and he was saying he's uh like he originally grew up in the in the Middle East and 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 spoke a spoke a different language and I don't remember exactly but he said that what he's done he's been living here in the US and works in the US and but he's gone back and he's been translating some some sort of ancient I think ancient uh poetry. So some pretty dense stuff. And he said he does it because it helps him to hone that sense of focus. And so, so with these strategies, and, and also you were talking about resilience, right? So with your kids trying to teach resilience, because sometimes we think that these things are either God-given, right? It's like either you're resilient or you're not. Can we build resilience within ourselves and can can we build this sense of 
gratification in a strategy that's well done that then applies to something else. Not only can we, we need to. And one of the things about our world is that everything's immediate. Um, you know, so often kids want to, you know, get stuff immediately. You know, they, I, I, I laugh about how we used to have film, you know, we would take pictures and we would have to wait weeks to get them developed. And now, you know, it's everything is immediate, fast food, fast everything. And there's this immediate gratification. But what happens, and this comes to the neurochemicals that we talk about, we like to say that neurochemicals are like text messages to our brain that drive our behavior, tell us what to do. And so we can get little messages like dopamine that says, wow, that felt good, do it again. Um, and we can get them in the short term, but we can also get them in the long term. And the long term are much, much better, stronger messages. So as parents, it's funny, we, we have this idea that we're supposed to make our kids' lives easy, which is the worst thing that we can do um, because we need them to struggle because it's only through struggle and hard work and, you know, failing and, and having trouble and then getting back and doing it again and, and, and working hard and finally getting that yes feeling that is a burst of neurochemicals, big burst that says, wow, that struggle was really worth it. And that's resilience um, that you, you worked hard, you got it. And then you got that big neurochemical reward. And we like to say there's a picture of the grasshopper with its arms up in the air like this. And we like to say that it represents the fact that self-esteem isn't a gift that we can give someone. It's a neurochemical response we rob them of when we don't let them struggle towards success. When we undermine their success, they don't get that long-term burst. They don't get that message that, wow, that hard work was really, really worth it. And that can end up priming the brain for addiction because you're always looking for that next fix. It's so you in the in your literature, you use the butterfly analogy talking about this as well, right? So so the butterfly, I mean, well, I'll let you you you've written it. So I'll let you talk about it. With the butterfly of I, I always say that adolescence is like the cocoon of the butterfly. So when, if you have a butterfly that's in its cocoon, you know, you go into the cocoon and then it, it's supposed to come out as a butterfly. The, the whole idea of that cocoon is that the, the butterfly builds up its strength in its wings by, by um, getting out of the cocoon, that, that it has to struggle, it has to do that in order to build up its muscles. And if somebody decides, oh, look at that poor butterfly, it's struggling to get out, let me help it. And it, it opens up the cocoon, that butterfly will die. It will never build up the wing strength to fly. And so when it comes out of the cocoon, it will die. And adolescence is kind of like that, that cocoon phase that kids have to struggle through. They have to go through some really tough stuff in order to build up the resilience to become independent adults. And we as parents kind of want to, we want to help them, <laughs> but that doesn't help in the long run. It's hard. It's my medium in so many ways is sports, right? And, and it's so easy to you know, to, to watch your heroes and they say, well, you know, 95% of the game is mental. And you go, okay, 
you are one of the most successful people ever. And you're saying it's 95% of the game is mental. What does that mean for me? Does that mean that you're just created that way and you're just stronger than I am? Or do I have the ability to build that confidence? Like I have, I, I have something that I hang on the wall in my house that, that reminds me of the things that I've done in the past that are part of my confidence. And some of this are, are things that we all share too, right? I mean, if I, like some of it I put on, I mean, obviously I don't, I don't walk anymore because I had an accident, but, but like learning how to walk is one of the most phenomenal things in the world. Like, it, like you've seen four kids do that. Uh, learning how to talk, learning how to read. I mean, if you think about how transformational those things are, and we've all done them, but we don't necessarily give ourselves credit for having done something that is that is a complete that is as much a metamorphosis as what you're talking about with the butterfly. Well, and it's funny because I you talk about the decisions and all of that stuff. And one of the things that I love more than anything is the name one revolution of your foundation. That one revolution and and I'm constantly telling people what that stands for, that it's one revolution of your hand cycle and that every choice we make, you know, that that 95% mental is that everything is a decision. Every moment we have decisions where we can give up and one revolution just in case anybody doesn't know it stands for one revolution of the hand cycle and they estimated what was it 525,000 revolutions 525 528 something like that I mean there's probably a plus or minus on some level yeah to get to the top of Kilimanjaro and every revolution was a decision you could have given up at any time every single revolution was do I keep going do I go back? Do I keep going? And so every decision we make, those small decisions lead to the big decisions. Um, and so at any time we can say, you know what, I'm done. I'm not doing this. And sometimes we should. There are some times when, when you realize that, um, and I give the example, I'll call out Marco, my, my oldest wanted to climb the, um, uh, oh, what's the, the big trail in Vermont? The long trail. He wanted to do, he was going to do it alone. And I kept saying to him, consider this your first try. And he was like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And after the first day, he he called me. He was like, yeah, this is not my time. Um, I'm not, I'm not ready to do it. That was a good decision. Sometimes giving up is a very good decision to cut your losses and say, you know what, this is, I'm not ready to handle this challenge right now. I need to go and and learn something else before I, I I need to learn from this experience. So giving up isn't necessarily a bad thing, but there are times when you're giving up for a reason, right. not just giving up. So recognizing that every decision is, you know, every revolution is a decision. And we all have all these small decisions that make up who we become. And it's easier to make small decisions than it is to make big decisions, right? I mean, it's sort of like we're creating that momentum. I mean, one revolution, one revolution is really taken from trekking, right? Where, where at altitude, there are a lot of things that you cannot do that you do very easily at sea level. And so the people who are the trekkers, they take what they call a rest step where all they can muster is one step and then rest. And the equivalent for me is one revolution, but, but it's also 
making one small decision is, is easy to do. Get that, make that one decision and go, okay, now do I have the ability to make another decision? And this is where you look at, you look at the, at the most successful people, the most successful people that I know are the people who are, who are creating incremental change on a daily basis and, and finding a way to move that needle, even if it's just a little bit, but we think of it from the outside, we think of it as being so profound yes. that we have to move from here to there. And, and taking charge is, is a big part of mental health literacy as well, right? This, this idea of being proactive, of, of being able to create a, a, a state of, uh, do we want, do I want to call it happiness? Do I want to call it, you know, it's kind of like, uh, uh, well, maybe you should, you know, understanding how to, how to foster and maintain positive mental uh, health, you know, I mean, like, this is, looking at that, that's saying, okay, how can I create this situation for myself? If there are problems, can I recognize them? Can I help minimize the outside issues like decreasing the this, this stigma? And then, and then also if I need help, can I find help? I mean, that's, right. so, so that is putting, that is putting the power in with the individual, right? Is that the objective? The objective, you know, yes, absolutely. You're absolutely right because agency, our brains like agency. We want to be able to foster our mental wellness. And you bring up the term mental health literacy, and that has been our focus as we launched um, Pathways to Empower. Um, my business partner, Jason Schofield, and I launched in January of 2020 because we were seeing that that states were beginning to implement mental health literacy legislation that saying, finally, we're going to start teaching about mental health in school. This has been something that's been missing for, for the history of schools. We never talked mental health in schools and we've seen how much stigma there was. We saw the rise in anxiety, depression, violence before the pandemic came. And so there were states that were beginning to say, oh, maybe we should teach about mental health literacy in schools. And New York, I happen to live in New York, and New York was the first state to require mental health literacy K through 12. And that was back in 2018. And when I called them in 2019 and said, how's that going for you? They said, there's literally nothing out there to help teachers and no teachers feel confident in teaching mental health literacy. So we launched to be able to help people to understand how to teach mental health literacy. And it's a new term. People don't know what it means. So often still, um, recently I talked to somebody, I won't call out what state it was, but they were the head of Mental Health America in one of the states. And I was talking about mental health literacy and distinguishing it from SEL, social emotional learning. And he was like, I can't believe I've never heard this term and I have I had no idea of the distinction. So it's new. People are just getting the idea. But mental health literacy has four pillars. It means that we are teaching kids how to foster and maintain their mental wellness. It means that we are providing language to help reduce stigma. So begin to have those conversations about mental health. There's been so much stigma. You, on average, from the beginning of onset of symptoms of mental health issues, it takes 10 years before somebody will seek help because of the stigma. 10 years. 10 years. 
is the average. So that, you know, for some people, it's a lot longer than that. So the third pillar is recognizing those signs and symptoms so that we can begin to understand when we're, we're having mental health issues. And the fourth is help seeking, helping people understand how do you get help? If you see these signs and symptoms, if you're developing a mental health problem, who do you go to for help and how do you ask? And it's different than social emotional learning. We say that it's like math and science. They're integrated, they, they're complementary, but they're not the same thing. Mental health literacy is critical. We need to begin to teach kids these four pillars so that we can be proactive, so that we can prevent, you know, we can't hire enough school psychologists for the kids who are showing mental health issues right now. We just can't, they don't exist. So we've got to start teaching kids at a very young age, this information. What is, what is that distinction between mental health literacy and social emotional learning? We have a quick guide on our website that has castle, you know, what we're, what they do for social emotional learning and then mental health literacy, what those four pillars are, but basically social emotional learning is teaching kids about their emotions, recognizing, you know, what does it mean to be angry? What does it mean to be sad? What does it mean? Like being able to name those emotions and teaching them how to have social skills. How do they interact? How do you share? How do you talk to people? Um, we actually hit in our programming, we hit all of SEL and we hit all of mental health literacy. I think we're probably the only program that hits SEL and mental health literacy. And I think we're the only program that teaches it, you know, at the kindergarten level. With regard to the stigma, it's interesting now because mental health was something that we didn't talk about. I mean, but <laughs> but we did talk about it like in in you know, it was almost like, it was almost like in, in jokes. I mean, you kind of look back on some of like when we were growing up and like, oh, that's someone who's mental, you know? And, and it's like, and, and, and this is what we're talking about, but you know, you're going totally mental here. You're, you know, and, and it was, it was within the vernacular of what we talked, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything that actually identified a a particular trait or whatever it was essentially this catch-all of like wow you are you are completely crazy and you don't want to be completely crazy yes whereas now we're starting to see with a lot of celebrities with with like online therapy with, with a variety of things does that help with regard to minimizing the stigma of mental health issues or we're definitely seeing youth are talking about mental health issues much more openly than we did. Our kids will talk about it openly, um, but they are angry that they haven't been taught about it. Our first course was called Thriving Through College. It was for college students. Um, and we launched it in the head of health and wellness at SUNY Oswego came to us and said, could you please create a course for my students? And we did. And we had, it was not required. She didn't tell them they had to do it. She just offered it and said, I'll give you extra credit if you do it. By the end of the semester, we had a 98% completion rate that students like all completed it and they all recommended it. And the biggest piece of feedback we got was anger. 
that nobody had taught them about their brains before. Nobody had taught them about mental health. Nobody had taught them to recognize the signs and symptoms. Nobody had talked to them about having this language that wasn't judgmental to talk about what they were going through, that understanding that their brains are wired this way and they were going through this stuff for a reason. And they were so angry. It was really it's sad, but they were angry. Which is which is interesting though, too, because if if when they were younger, they they were being taught, you know, okay, we're we're going to talk about your brains, we're going to talk about mental health literacy or whatever, you know, I mean, there might be some resistance early on of like, why do we need to talk about this? But as they progress into into the college years, then they're angry that somebody hasn't brought this up. But you're doing it in a fun way because sometimes these things can seem so heavy handed that that the the process of of learning is something that builds resistance to the subject And, and so you're talking about something that's far more accessible and there are a lot of other places where you can find resources too right there are and and if we introduce it in a fun way the kids relate to the characters, like even young kids, they, they get it. Um, and they want to know what's going on in their brain. They, you know, I don't think it's, and, and there are a lot of other resources out there and, and animation is something that everybody relates to. It's just, you know, there's a reason Pixar's done pretty well. Um, we, we like characters. We like to relate to it. Um, and we like to have information. How does that work on the language side of it? Because you're talking about going and talking to kids, you know, so educating kids, but then educating the educators and then also the the, the parents. And so, so you're creating a, a common language. What is that doing for the community? We always say that it's so much better if everyone has access to it, if everybody understands. We actually have, um, we're working right now with um, with Michigan to possibly get in statewide for all parents, all teachers, all um, school staff, all healthcare workers, um, and all students, K through 12. And when everybody has that common language, when they can understand it together, it becomes a really easy way to have these conversations, to be able to talk about mental health in a way that's not judgmental. Um, understanding, you know, when do you need help? How do you help each other? Um, we did a study with at-risk middle and high schoolers. And one of the things we found more than anything is that their willingness to seek help after doing the program was much higher because it it felt like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm not, you know, in a negative sense that this is what I'm going through. This is what, and, and particularly adolescent. I mean, one of the things that we like to say is that the, just like being over 60 is a risk factor for the um, physical health issues of COVID being an adolescent by virtue of where their brains, what their brains are supposed to be doing during that time they are at an increased risk for mental health issues associated with COVID because their brains, so much of what their brains were wired to do was undermined by COVID. And so much of the parenting um, was, we went in the wrong direction during COVID. 
Um, so a lot of what was needed, we said the, the most important needs for the brain are a sense of security and a sense of autonomy. Never is that more important than during adolescence. And COVID undermined both. For the adolescents and for the parents as well. Everybody was thrown into this, this situation where they didn't know what was going on. If we're able to do this, if we're able to teach mental health literacy, if we're able to enrich the community and, and get everybody speaking the same language, what does it look like? What does the end result look like You know, in this, in this world where everything works out? In this world where everything works out, if people did it, I really believe it could be transformational. I believe that we would make more mindful choices. I believe that people could have conversations that were much less conflicting, um, that it could, you know, bring down that volatility. I actually have been speaking for years with Eric McNulty, who's the head of, um, uh, his title is crazy, but director of the Harvard Harvard University's, um, they, they train people who deal with national crises. It, it was created right after 9-11. And he and I have always said, we would love to take a community, any community, and teach everyone in the community about the brain science and about leadership and, and brain-based leadership and understanding the brain science behind it and having that language um, and then track every bit of data from, you know, um, kids not going to school, from fights, from truancy, from, from um, well, truancy is not going to school, but um, conflict with teachers, you know, uh, um, you know, kids getting into trouble, like everything, track, you know, people going to jail, people going to, like all of those things. And he said, my, my expectation would be we would see dramatic changes in all of those. It would be really, I mean, it sounds like a really interesting world. What what are what are the impediments? I mean, some of it, like looking at your program, uh, you, you are one of the one of the few programs that it that actually click uh, checks off all the pillars for mental health literacy in the country. But what what are the impediments of of reaching people? Does this stay in the stigma thing? Is it is it such a new paradigm that that people are having trouble making that step to get to a community? Because so much of of we're looking for personal interaction. We're looking for a way to be able to communicate, and and this is something that stands in our way. What what are the obstacles? I think one of the things is just paralysis. When it comes to mental health, people who are in our generation are scared, are scared to make the wrong choice. So the federal government funded, gave a, a ton of money to schools to fund all sorts of programming, including mental health literacy. Um, the secretary of education, Cardona, was the first secretary of education to call out mental health literacy and use that term and say, every school K through 12 should be implementing uh, mental health literacy. A lot of that funding um, has not been used for mental health literacy. A lot of it has been used for social emotional learning because people are more comfortable with that. When it comes to mental health, I think that a lot of people are so afraid to make the wrong decision that they'd rather make no decision. Um, and, and so this is something that's new. Um, we were, we were 
so excited that um, Chad's Legacy Project, um, which was started by Todd and Laura Crooks, um, their son died by suicide. And they thought, you know, if we had mental health literacy, that could have saved his life. Um, so they hired the University of Washington Smart Center to vet programs for mental health literacy at the high school level. We were one of three programs that they said, they vetted over 300 programs. And we were one of three that they said actually taught mental health literacy, all four pillars. Um, and I think that- What we, are the four pillars? I mean, again- the four pillars are one, um, learning how to uh, foster and maintain mental wellness. Second one is reducing stigma. So providing a language for people to, to talk about stigma. So, you know, I talked about the ant, I talked about, you know, how do we foster our mental health? Second one is reducing stigma. So having that common non-judgmental language to talk about this stuff. The third is understanding signs and symptoms and common um, mental health disorders. So understanding what does it mean to have depression? What does it mean to have anxiety? What does it mean to um, have schizophrenia or bipolar? We're seeing a big increase in, in a lot of those mood disorders as well. So understanding those signs and symptoms so we can begin to treat it early. Um, and the fourth pillar is understanding how to seek help. Because as I said, it's 10 years on average before people begin to seek help. So how can we tell people, here's how you can get help? Right. And those other three pillars are helpful in getting someone to the point where they can seek help. It's it's part of the reason that you and I started our name tags program with One Revolution. The name tags is about, you know, about getting beyond the labels and limitations that we that we put on ourselves and others. I can't do this because of this. I can't do this because of that. It's resilience-based. Our motto is, it's not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. And, and it was interesting when we looked at it too, to, to try, because this came out of climbing Kilimanjaro and, and trying to affect a, a greater change for people. I mean, I often talk about our, our mission with One Revolution is to turn perception of disability upside down. And that can be really specific when you look at 1.2 billion people in the world with physical disabilities, 15% of the population. But it's also disability in a lot of ways to me means that thing that gets between us and what we want to do or us and who we want to be, being fulfilled as an individual. And that that in a lot of ways is my, my definition of what disability is because we need it to be a universal message. And, and we also need to reach people whose minds are open, which is why we went to schools, right? What is the, what's the biggest, the biggest opportunity in working with young kids? I think that kids are, kids are hungry to learn this stuff. Um, and they, you know, we, I, I love name tags because it gives them that idea of, oh, I can do this. Like I have, it, it's about any challenge. It's not about any individual challenge. So when you do the name tags program, we always say that, <clears throat> excuse me, our resilience is our response to any challenge, good, bad, big, or small. So you talk about your challenge, but they relate it to their challenges. So they can look at that and say, oh, okay, here's what I can do for 
for my challenges and I can relate this. It's not just about being inspirational. It's being about, you can do this. We, we all have the ability to make these choices. And so we can do that. And if we can get kids when they're young, they can build that up. And, and disability is a lot of disabilities right now for youth are mental health disabilities that are getting in their way for this. So turning perception of disability upside down works for both physical and mental challenges and recognizing what are we doing to put barriers in people's way for them to not be able to meet their potential, whether that's physical, whether that's that's mental, that we need to start early teaching kids about this. And we go to schools and, and we talk about being a wellness-informed community, that being a wellness-informed community has a lot of pieces of the puzzle. There's a lot of pieces of that, of thinking proactively, how do we make a community where we foster people and their health, where we put their health first? And that is about being proactive. And that is, you know, we, we need to have screening. We need to have mental health literacy. We need to have social-emotional learning. We need to have community events where we talk about this, we need to have inspiration. We need to have all of these pieces of that puzzle to show people that we care about their health and we care about them as a whole person. And one of the big things with um, with schools right now is teachers are leaving. It's hard to attract talent because it's a tough job. And so when we talk about a, a wellness-informed community being a place that can attract and retain good talent because people want to be at a place where they feel secure and autonomous. <laughs> That's what the brain wants. So if we make it a place where people feel safe from those both physical and social threats, and they feel like they can be independent, that they can, they can be their best, they can have that sense of purpose. That's how we're going to make people want to be there. It's it's interesting that you say that because because one is like going through the name tags where you talk about the idea of I can do this, but the other part I think that comes out of it is I'm not alone. Yes, it's really easy to feel like you're alone, and it's easy to look around and think that everybody else has it all figured out, and yeah. you are the only one who doesn't. So looking at these communities and building building off of these communities, it, it seems like there should be a light bulb going on, doesn't there? I mean, it's like, like physically, <laughs> I look at this and say, okay, it, it, I've been, I've been getting out of my bike more and I start seeing benefits. You know, I start seeing benefits where I'm going a little bit faster. I'm feeling a little bit stronger in different parts. I'm going, oh, wow, I didn't, I hadn't done that before. This is kind of nice, right? But it's almost like, there's a mental block with regard to how we look at our mental health. Like we should just be strong. And the proactive part that you're talking about is something that's so important in, in recognizing that we need to continue to learn to grow and, and to build that. And, and that it really is like being in shape. This is like our mental shape. Do you feel like you're being successful in in trying to trying to trying to shift that paradigm that 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 belief? I think we are seeing a shift, but it is incredibly slow. 
Um, we're seeing people begin to talk about mental health. We're seeing states, Connecticut just um, passed legislation requiring mental health literacy in schools. We're seeing, you know, we're making some progress, but it's incredibly slow. It, it takes a long time to change people's minds. This has been a long time that we have really ignored mental health, that we haven't taught people about it, that we have sort of said, we should just be strong, that we should just, you know, just suck it up. It's okay. I told you that the news programs and the social media and um, entertainment companies hire neuroscientists and they are, they are, making a lot more progress than, you know, it's, it's somehow that poking the grasshopper is a lot easier than teaching people to nurture the ant and take care of their ant. It's harder. Um, it's funny because my, you know, you talk to people about uh, doing mindful practice and, and I have to say, I'm somewhat guilty of this. Not that I, I don't understand it, but it's, they're like, well, I tried that for a week and it didn't work. And you're like, well, if you go to the gym for a week, do you see all of a sudden you look like, you know, yeah. <laughs> you've got all these big muscles? No, it takes time. It, it's exactly it. I keep getting reminded there's this uh, Dalai Lama quote, and I hope I do it justice, where they asked him what 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 he was concerned about in the world. And he said, man, because he spends his health to make money, then spends his money to try to regain his health. And he's so concerned about the future that he never lives in the present and, and thinks he's going to live forever, but dies having never really lived. And, and I think that this encapsulates so much of what we're looking at is like, okay, we're, we're willing to spend our health. And I think that, that the mental health more than our, more than our physical health, because they're both connected, but I think the mental health is really what we're, what that currency is, what we're willing to spend in order to effectively get ahead. And then we're thinking, oh, now I need to be healthy. Yeah. So can we approach it in a different way? And, and it sounds like that's exactly what you're trying, what you're teaching. Well, it was funny because years ago, and it was probably a good 10, 12 years ago, I was at a conference and it was, um, somebody was presenting from the Microsoft Envisioning team. And he was showing videos of all the technology they have. And it was fascinating. Um, and, you know, he said at the end of it, you know, we have this technology, we have the ability to do this. So what are things that scare you? And what are things that excite you about this? And everybody was answering questions and, and he was calling on people. And I raised my hand and I said, what scares me is what we are doing to the human brain. And at the end of the, you know, he went on and he wrote that on the board. And at the end, somebody said to him, you know, clearly you've done this many, many times. Is there anything that came out that, you know, was different today that was novel? And he, he like pointed to me and he said that, and it scares the heck out of me. And he was like, I've never thought about what we're doing to our brains, but we are really devolving our brains. Um, evolution has been growing the prefrontal cortex in comparison to the limbic system. We are now overfeeding that grasshopper, overfeeding that emotional part of the brain. And that kind of devolves the brain, um, that limbic system. And one of the things about that is that when we experience trauma, when we have those traumatic experiences, we sort of feed that limbic system. And, and that prefrontal cortex, the highest level thinking of our brain 
begins to shrink. And so we are shrinking that prefrontal cortex and growing that limbic system. So it's it's going to be a cycle. We're, we're feeding into it and we're seeing it more and more. I mean, looking at the news is just really scary. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and, and it's interesting. It, it keeps going back to that butterfly for me that, that, that the struggle is the thing that, that looks so hard from the outside, but is so important to who we are as people and continuing to grow and evolve, as you're saying. It, it's hard. And, and I have to say, I struggle with it every day. As a parent, I struggle every day. It's, it's very difficult to raise kids right now. Very difficult. Um, and I find myself letting them do a lot of things that I don't want to, because there's, it, it's, we're in a very tough world right now. Yeah. And you're raising kids, but you're also raising yourself, right? This is, this is how it works on an individual basis too. Yeah. It's, it's tough. It, you know, it really is. And that's why, you know, I think we need to have these conversations. I think we need to have these, these talks about understanding balance, understanding why we're making decisions. We are, um, you know, recognizing that, you know, with the technology we have as parents and bosses and leaders and whatever to micromanage, the people that we're working with and, and surveil all the time and not build that trust that we have to recognize. And, and I like to say, just because we can, doesn't mean we should, we have to realize what are the messages that we're sending. And that foundation of security and autonomy is built on trust. And if we don't build that trust, we're in trouble. And we have to build in some of that time to allow ourselves the space to make good emotional decisions as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough time. That doesn't mean that, you know, it has to be all negative. We've got a lot of great stuff going on and, and I'm so excited that the youth are really ready to take this on and saying, you know, we need to, we need to take control of our mental health. We need to take control of our world. And there's a lot of, youth that are ready to do that but we have to help them yeah and and it's I, th I think that's a nice twist and a nice twist to end on as well is that it's so easy to see that this is the time of the apocalypse and and you can see that throughout history right i mean it came from the beginning of history throughout the world is going to end we are we're we're oriented we're probably hardwired to believe that as well but uh but I read a quote just recently, and it was the these times, like all times, are the best of times. And I think it was Emerson who wrote it. I'm not positive, but there's always that too, right? There's always that that opportunity. There's always that sense of optimism, but sometimes we can get burdened by everything that's so difficult around us. So, yeah, we have a lot. Of, you know, with challenges come opportunities. And, and we have a lot of opportunities as the human race right now. And I'm just going to suggest maybe learning about our brains would help us to be able to use those. <laughs> I think that's exactly the point that we need to take out of it. This, this, that learning about our brains will help us to seize the opportunities in what looks like a very challenging world. Donna, thank you so much for joining us. This was absolutely wonderful. It's always a pleasure to get a chance to talk to you. And thank you again. 
Thank you so much. I love talking to you. It's always, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. You're welcome. And thank you to all of you. I hope you enjoyed our talk today. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends, tell them to tune in, tell them to check it out, tell them to follow us, to like us, and we will look forward to seeing you next time. Take care. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.